Dias again, everybody. Glad that you're here. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 7, so if you'd like to turn there in your, in your uh, Bibles, that would be great. We'll, we'll get there in a minute. We've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, this great teaching of Jesus that he gave us, which is really a picture of how it is to live in the kingdom, what it means to be a kingdom citizen, specifically what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And he's really giving us this question now at the end that he's, that he's given us his law, he's given us his, um, his words, and patience is a virtue. Okay, that's a picture, I don't want a picture. I apologize for this. But if you've been here any time at all, you know something about me and technology. Good? All right. Okay. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has preached through it, and now he's gotten to the end. He's given us basically his word, his law, and then he asks us the question through four different warnings. He asks us the question, what are you now going to do with my words? What are you going to do with what I've said? What are you going to do with my teaching? What are you going to do with my kingdom? And really, what are you going to do with me? So that's the question for all of us as we go through this. What are we going to do with Jesus? And we're spending a week on each of these four warnings. I could easily go through these in a week, but that wouldn't really get us to stop and ponder and soak in the questions that Jesus is asking us and and the way that he's warning us to not ignore his words. He's asking us, will we go through the wide gate and go on the smooth path that leads to destruction, or will we go through this narrow gate and and walk this rugged path of discipleship? Will we be drawn away to, to believe teachers that come like wolves in sheep's clothing, gentle and kind, and yet trying to draw us away to the to the smooth path, or will we listen to Jesus alone and his words. And especially during the season of Lent, it's right for us to stop and slow down during these weeks leading up to to Easter and ask the right questions and take inventory of our own lives and test ourselves. Who are we following? Ask yourself, what am I believing? Who am I trusting? You know, as a pastor, it'd be really easy to to get up here and try to give a really good TED Talk every week. Or maybe some DIY videos on how to follow Jesus. Or I could get up and give you a bunch of life hacks on what it means to to live a happy and fulfilled life and how to get Jesus to give you everything you really want. But that would not help you at all. In fact, that would send you right on the road to destruction. And I would do you absolutely no good if I'm not calling you to Jesus. If I'm not calling you to follow him in discipleship. So it's worthwhile for us to take these weeks to consider each of these four warnings and really allow the call of Jesus to go deep and to take root in our souls. And Jesus is going to call us here in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, to what the most important thing is. So if you follow along with me, here's what he says. Not everyone saying to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and and cast out demons in your name and do many marvelous works in your name? And then Jesus says this, I will publicly and plainly proclaim to them, I never knew you. Depart from my presence, workers of lawlessness. I don't know if you've ever played a forced choice game. We used to play this when I did junior high ministry. We'd have all the kids um, get in the middle of the room, and then I'd give them a forced choice. They'd have to choose between one or the other and go to one side of the room or the other. And it was the kind of thing where it's like, would you rather have mashed potatoes or uh, french fries? You know, and you have to choose. And all the time, there was always kids who wanted to just stay in the middle because they couldn't make a decision. Any of you ever get like decision fatigue or you just get like deer in the headlights when you have to make a decision or go, go to the store and pick out which option you're supposed to get? And sometimes we feel like with Jesus, we can just stay in the middle. Can I have this and this? And Jesus, through all of these warnings, he makes these clear dichotomies. You're either over here or you're over here. There's not a spectrum where you get to pick your spot in the middle. You are either following me or you're not. You are either going through a wide gate onto a smooth road or you're going through a narrow gate onto a rugged road. You are either listening to me or you're listening to false prophets. You are either a bad tree with bad fruit or you're a good tree with good fruit. And as we'll see, now Jesus is going to make a distinction between two groups of workers who both have something in common. Let's just turn, the, let's just turn those off. I think that would be easier for everyone. Two groups of workers now who have both something in common and a clear dissimilarity that sets them apart from each other. Okay, so we had two, two gates, two roads, two paths, two trees, two sets of fruit, and now two kinds of workers. And at first glance, if you look at verse 21 here, it seems that Jesus is making the distinction based on what we say. So some of those who say, Lord, Lord, and it seems like there's another group who does the will of my Father. But I, I want to be clear that this is not the distinction Jesus is making. Rather, we have to look at verse 22 to really see the picture of the fundamental difference that, that makes these two groups opposite. So the, the first group is made up of, of what I would call false workers. Those who say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. And then they go out and they do these marvelous works. They prophesy and they they cast out demons and they do signs and wonders. So this is the group who say, Lord, Lord, and you add to that miraculous works. So if you think of it as a math equation, Lord, Lord, plus miraculous works equals false workers. The other group, though, is what Jesus would, would perhaps call true workers. These are those who also say, Lord, Lord, And what they add to that isn't all these miraculous works, but is obedience to the Father. All those who do the will of my Father. So if you made a math equation, it would be this, that true workers equal those who say, Lord, Lord, and who do the Father's will. So the first thing to notice here is that saying, just saying, Lord, Lord, to Jesus, just calling him Lord is not enough. 
Both these groups say, Lord, Lord, but in verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in that he's implying that there are some who do say to him, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven, and others who say, Lord, Lord, who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus says, you say, Lord, Lord, what in the world is he talking about here? Is it just mouthing words to him? Well, in simplest terms, what it means is, is to address Jesus like he's actually in charge. That's what saying Lord, Lord means. It means confessing, using our mouths to say, Jesus, you are in charge. You are master. You are king. And, I, and I'm saying outwardly and audibly, audibly publicly and plainly, I'm confessing your authority over my life. To say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus is to say, you are my master, I submit my life to you, you're in charge, not me. That's what it means to say, Lord, Lord, to Jesus. But you'll notice that both of these groups make that profession. Both the false workers and the true workers say, Lord, Lord, you're my master, you're my king, I'll submit to you. So the point here is that it will not get you into heaven just to say, Lord, Lord. Just to say to Jesus, you're my master and my king. A public and plain confession of Jesus as Lord is necessary, but it's not sufficient for us to get into the kingdom of heaven. And I'm afraid there are many in the church, even in this room, who have and will continue with their mouths to make public profession of Jesus as their Lord and yet disobey him in their lives every day. Confessing Jesus is not enough. Now the distinction between these groups then isn't what they say, it's based on what they do. It has to do with their works. As we already saw in the Verses just before this, in verses 16 and 20, Jesus says, a tree is recognized by its fruits. And so the first group, the false workers, have only done marvelous works in Jesus' name. That's it. That's all they have in their doing. And at first glance, of course, th that seems like a big deal. Okay, if somebody came in here, if I were to show up every Sunday morning and cast all the demons out of everyone and prophesy, and all those things came true, and walk around and touch you if you were not feeling well or ill, and heal you, that would kind of be a big deal, wouldn't it? Do you think we'd fill up the pews on Sunday morning? Do you think we'd have a great offering every week? Maybe we'd get a, a television slot or a radio slot or something like that. We'd get a, a bunch of hits on YouTube. We'd be popular, and draw, jaws would drop. We would even make headlines as a church. But, but think carefully about this because I think most of us would ask the question, okay, if, how could anyone do those kinds of things? Prophecy, miracles, casting out demons. How, how could anybody do those kinds of works if God wasn't working through them? And if God is working through them, doesn't that mean that he's pleased with them, that he's putting his seal of approval on them. Does the question make sense? If that's happening, isn't God involved? Isn't God putting his seal of approval on these people? Jesus himself seems to say something very similar. If you turn a few chapters to your right to Matthew chapter 12, 
When some of the religious leaders come and accuse Jesus of basically being on the same team as Satan, they say in verse 24, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. They're accusing Jesus of saying, hey, this guy is on Satan's team and he's casting out demons because Satan has allowed him to. And Jesus responds with this statement starting in verse 25. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Did you know that Abraham Lincoln did not coin that phrase? By the way, he's quoting off of Jesus, by the way. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by who do your sons cast them out? So, he, so he's telling them, there, there's Jewish people, Pharisees, Sadducees. There's Jews who are going out and doing a ministry of exorcism. They're going out and casting out demons. And Jesus basically says, okay, if, if you're saying I'm doing this because of Satan, what about you guys? Therefore, he says, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And it seems that one of the things Jesus is saying that, that when the, these mighty works are happening, it's not false workers, and it may not even be Satan that is producing these marvelous or miraculous works in Jesus' name. In fact, the, the person that it probably is is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God can work however, wherever, whenever, and through whomever he wants. He can work through those who follow Jesus. And he can work through those who don't follow Jesus. So, so miraculous works, Jesus is saying, these grand, mighty, miraculous works aren't a litmus test for whether or not your heart is right with me for whether we're living a life in submission to Jesus. False prophets, false teachers, false miracle workers will often pop up and do amazing things, drawing us in with their words. They're hard to spot. In fact, they look just like sheep, but they're really wolves. But don't be deceived. These works are not the fruit that Jesus is looking for. That's not the fruit he's looking for. He's not looking for all these amazing things. I love the story in Acts chapter 19, and if you want to turn there, you can, but I'll just read the story quickly for you. In Acts chapter 19, there's a story, uh, as Paul's going around, all these amazing things are happening. Acts 19, starting at verse 11, and it says that God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of the apostle Paul, and get this, I love this, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So let me tell you this. If an apron or a handkerchief can drive out demons and heal people, anybody can. The Holy Spirit can work through fabric. The Holy Spirit can work through you. The Holy Spirit can work through anything and anyone. So the holy, evil spirits came out of them. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, like Jesus was talking about, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, I love this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. In other words, Jesus whom I don't even know, but Paul keeps preaching about him. 
That's who I'm telling you to get out in his name, doing mighty works in Jesus' name. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this is one of those times, and I think probably a lot of these guys were were going around saying, hey, I'm telling you to to get out of this person in Jesus' name. And, And Jesus would honor that somehow and cast out demons. Well, this time it didn't work. This time it's like Jesus said, you know what, I'm just gonna let you have Have your way with these guys, demon. And the demon did, overpowered them and left them naked and wounded and running away. These these men, these seven sons of Sceva, were were basically going around and trying to do Jesus' works, mighty works, without ever knowing him. And what they were doing was using Jesus for their own ends, for their own purposes using him as a tool to do what they wanted to do, make a name for themselves. And this is really the crux of the matter. We can either know and obey Jesus, or we can seek to use Jesus for our own purposes. Jesus is saying that these marvelous works done in his name are not enough. They're not enough. But on the other hand, true workers may or may not have done any mighty works, their reward is contingent upon what is of utmost importance in the kingdom, which Jesus says is obedience. Doing the will of the Father. So true workers have a love for Jesus and his glory that far outweighs their desire to do a bunch of mighty works. What obedience may end up looking like for these true workers, for those who are connected to Jesus and serving him, what obedience might look like is completely being out of the spotlight and serving quietly and humbly and selflessly and sacrificially. True workers refuse to use Jesus for for their own purposes, and they give their whole lives over to being used for Jesus' purposes. That's what a true worker is. And speaking again of these false workers who do not do the will of the Father, Jesus says in short that those who do not do the will of the Father do not know Jesus. Get that. If you do not do the will of the Father, you do not know Jesus. And if you do not obey him, you can't claim to know him. We could invert that statement and say something like this, that those who do the will of the Father know Jesus. And as as Jesus said elsewhere, to know him is eternal life. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what it means to have life, is to know Jesus. So let's take that phrase again. Those who do the will of the Father know Jesus, and let's do the converse of it, which is this. Those who know Jesus will do the Father's will. In other words, the good fruit of knowing Jesus as the Lord is flat-out obedience to him. So to put it another way, many who think they know Jesus because they've made a, a plain and public confession of him 
and they've successfully used his name to make themselves look good actually don't know Jesus. They will be surprised on that day when they say, Lord, Lord, and he replies by saying, I never knew you. I mean, the imagery here is stark. That we all, whether false workers or true, will one day stand before King Jesus. Some of us will claim to to have publicly and plainly proclaimed our connection to Jesus through, through word and deed. But Jesus will in turn respond in kind, publicly, plainly proclaiming that there's actually no connection there at all. And I hope, I hope and I pray that none of us are in that boat on that day. When it comes down to it, knowing Jesus is the key. And that's, that's not even quite right. Because the more important thing here in this verse is being known by Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. Which makes his knowledge of us of much greater importance than our knowledge of him. Jesus knows those who do the will of his Father. As difficult and rough and unrewarding that that kind of life will be or might be. Be assured, if you are a servant of Jesus, if you are one who's humbly, sacrificially seeking to do his will, and when you do that, work of Jesus by obeying his father, by obeying his words, Jesus knows you and he sees you. And it's it's not some kind of 30,000 foot knowledge because Jesus is all knowing and he knows everything and it's just this fact that he can pull out of the air. No, Jesus knows you intimately. He's with you. He's helping you. He's walking alongside you. He's filling you with his spirit. He will not leave you alone. Could there be any greater encouragement than this? Jesus knows you. Now take note in verse 23 of what Jesus' final statement is to these false workers. Matthew 7, 23 says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Jesus uh, here quotes from Psalm chapter 6, verse 8. And if you go in your English Bible and look, look at that, it actually says workers of evil, not workers of lawlessness. And so Jesus kind of turns the phrase here. And in do, doing so, he makes a subtle connection with God's law, the, the Torah, the, the Old Testament law. And he connects that to his own words. And Jesus is saying that failure to obey his words, specifically the words of this sermon, is lawlessness. So in disobeying Jesus' words, that is working lawlessness. If we disobey his words, which are now, he's saying, on par with the Torah, on par with the Old Testament. If you obey my words, you are disobeying, you are obeying the law. If you disobey them, you're disobeying the law. You're breaking the law. That's, that's quite a big claim for uh, some backwoods Jewish carpenter to make. That my words are on par with the words of Moses. But we know that he's not just a carpenter from Nazareth, don't we? Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The second member of the Trinity. 
In Jesus, we're told, all the fullness of God, all the fullness of deity dwells in him. Jesus is God himself. And to obey Jesus' words is the very same thing as obeying the Father's words, as doing the will of the Father. Obeying Jesus is obeying God. And there's no place in his kingdom, Jesus said, for workers of lawlessness, for false workers who refuse to keep the law of the king. One can't come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, and then fail to do what he's commanded. That's flat-out disobedience. The punishment for disobedience and treason is severe. Depart from my presence, Jesus says. It's like a king sitting on his throne and saying, off with you. Take him away. Be gone. Which are pretty harsh words from tender Jesus meek and mild, always loving, always full of grace, the Jesus who's always and only love, dealing with those who, well, when you say these workers seem to try really hard. But remember that Jesus is God incarnate, the God who's jealous and just, who will countenance no counterfeit gods, who will give no quarter to rebels. He's a God who requires and demands absolute devotion. And brothers and sisters, we can't be devoted to our own glory and seek to use Jesus to make ourselves more popular and then claim to know him. So Jesus is simply calling it like it is. And he only sends those away from him who really don't want to have anything to do with him in the first place. They want Jesus on their own terms. They want Jesus to serve their desires and their purposes, and he will have none of it. Jesus will give you what you want, and if you want freedom from his rules, then he will give that to you. It just won't be with him. But if you want Jesus, if you want life, then come to him and submit to him as king and Lord and Savior. Let me give you three takeaways before I close here. And the, the first takeaway is very similar to what it was last week, and it's simply this, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by those who come claiming to know Jesus, who back up their claims with big crowds and and signs and wonders or whatever. These things are not essential for obedience to Jesus. Can they be the fruit of, of ministry connected with Jesus? Absolutely, but they're not the primary sign. They're not absolutely conclusive signs of genuine faith or calling. But intimate, infinitely more important than this is whether or not They do the will of the Father. That's how we recognize fruits. So don't be fooled by those who claim to know Jesus and don't. And the second takeaway is simply this, to check your own fruit. This is a more personal note. It's a warning and a calling to us to make sure we're not one of those who claim to know Jesus but really don't. Check your fruit. Do you prefer your own glory over the glory of King Jesus? And I think we'd all probably have to say yes to that on a lot of days. 
But does the overall tenor of your life seek the glory of Jesus, even when your flesh resists it? Do you use Jesus as a tool to achieve your own purposes, or do you submit to him as king for his purposes? See, knowing Jesus is key to entering the kingdom, and the fruit of knowing him is glad and humble obedience to his words. Will we always get it right? No. Will we fall? Yes. Do we need to confess and repent every day? Absolutely. So I want to finish with this, and it's hope and grace and encouragement, and it's basically this, that Jesus knows you and sees you. He will say over and over again throughout this gospel, Jesus' words will, he will say that the path of discipleship is rugged, it's difficult, sometimes it's dark, full of obstacles, full of enemies, persecution, grief, joy, gladness, goodness, many of these things. But he also says that he knows those who travel this rugged road of obedience to him. He says that he'll never leave them or forsake them. He says that he will be with them always, even to the end of the age. He reminds us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, which means that the full resources of all of heaven and earth are at his command on our behalf. We have nothing to fear when we obey him and the Father, when we draw close. So be assured Faithful servants of God, discouraged servants of God, those who just feel weak today, Jesus knows you and he sees you. And there cannot be any greater hope and encouragement and sustenance than that. And today we come to the Lord's table where we regularly receive sustenance from our King. We take of bread and we take of juice. It's not going to fill our tummies. It's not going to satisfy hunger and thirst, but it's going to remind us of the only one who can satisfy our true hunger and thirst, the bread of life, the one who, is the, who gives us living water. This is the one who's come and he's given out his life for us. He's given it all out. He's, he's, he's laid everything out. He's poured all of his blood out for you and for me, for our forgiveness and for our life. And so for those of you who are discouraged today, for those of you who are sitting there going like, I don't even know if I'm saved, come and take the grace of Jesus. Drink in, ingest forgiveness and encouragement and hope. For those of you who have never and would not claim to know Jesus, I can only counsel you in this way is to consider his words. Consider his warning pray this morning and perhaps God is drawing you to Jesus this morning for relationship, for confession, repentance and forgiveness and new life. Would you come to him as well? So as we come to the table, would you pray with me? Our Father, we do come to you. Jesus, we come to you, our King, our God, our Lord, our Savior, we do not want to be those who just say, Lord, Lord, and do not do the will of the Father, who say one thing and act another way, who claim obedience and do not give obedience. 
Father, save us from that. And save us from the consequences of that. We pray, Jesus, as our hearts are, are maybe discouraged today, as our hearts are, are worn down by walking the rough road of discipleship, would you come and encourage and fill up your people? Father, we need your grace and encouragement. We need your spirit to enliven us and remind us of the gospel. There's nothing we do, there's nothing we can do, there's no works that will earn your favor or your grace. It is only by the grace, the death, and the substitutionary sacrifice of our King Jesus that we have any hope. So we come again and we throw ourselves on you, King Jesus. Give us hope today. Give us life today. Encourage us. And Lord, I do pray for those in the room that you're prodding and you're pricking. Maybe we've been ones who are living for ourselves, living for our own glory, not really wanting to obey you, but wanting all the benefits of knowing you. Father, I pray that you'd wake us up from that kind of slumber and deceit. Wake us up to a life, fullness of life, following after you, our King. Pray all these in the name and for the glory of Jesus. Amen.